We're in Exodus. Uh, Exodus 24 is, is where we are today. Um, in Exodus 24, God demonstrates his grace in making the covenant with his people. And by confirming the, the covenant with the blood, um, he shows sinful Israel the only possible way to make a covenant with the holy God is having a sacrifice substitute in their place. Because of the blood, they can access God through their mediator. So uh, the sermon today, I'm going to break it down in three different sections. First, we're going to talk about the covenant, covenants actually even in, in general. Um, and, and then there's, there's, a, there, there's a part of this passage where, where they get a, a glimpse of God's glory. So I, I just want to, I want to touch on, at least for a little bit, how unique God is. He is so different than we are, that, that, that he is completely out of our league. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the blood. We're going to talk about the importance of the blood to Israel back then, the importance of the blood to us today. Anyway, so let, let's talk covenants. And um, you guys won't be able to see this, but we have a, a definition of uh, the covenants up there. This is by uh, Wayne Grudem. He says, a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship, right? So, so the covenant, it comes from God. It's a, it's a legal agreement, um, and, and it stipulates how this relationship is going to work, the conditions of the relationship. Um, here's another definition for you that, uh, that for some might be more helpful. I, I just had a hard time choosing between both these definitions, so I decided to do both of them. Um, Tim Mackey, um, he says, a covenant describes a formal relationship between two parties to a set of promises so they can work together towards a common goal. So back in Exodus 19, um, God says to, to the Israelites, he says, uh, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. You, you'll be my people. Um, the Israelites say, all that God has said, we will do, right? It, it, all at once, they, they, they agree together. And uh, they're going to do this again in, in chapter, 23, chapter 24. Um, let's read verses 3 through 7. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses comes to the people. He tells them all the words of Yahweh, and they respond with one voice. All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then he writes down what the Lord had said. He builds, builds the altar at the foot of the mountain. He, he, he gets these, these 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He sends young men to, to make the sacrifices. He takes the blood for the sacrifice, and, and half of it he puts in basins, half of it he throws on the altar. And this passage, is, is, it, it points to how necessary blood is. And we'll talk more about this later, but, but the covenant doesn't happen without the blood. They, they need the blood to make it possible. 
the message here is you cannot approach God on your own. You can't approach God on your own merit. A sacrifice has to be made for sins. So he takes the blood of the covenant, uh, or sorry, he, he takes uh, the book of the covenant, which is Exodus 20 through 23, right? All the, the, the laws, the Ten Commandments, all the case laws that we've been going through here over the weeks. He reads it to the people, and again, they agree. They say, we'll do it. We're in. We will be obedient. So the covenant's been agreed to. God, God established it. He proposed them that, they'll be, uh, that he will be their God. You'll be my people. He says, you obey in these ways, and I will fulfill my promises to, to bless you. This is uh, what we call the, the Mosaic Covenant. And the word covenant is, is a pretty obscure word to us. I mean, we've all heard it, um, but we don't use it much. My guess is um, the only time it probably really comes up is, is if you have an HOA, right? And you have, you have CCNRs. You have covenants, conditions, and restrictions. And you don't look at those unless you think your neighbor's doing something they shouldn't or if you want to do something and find out if you shouldn't or not. And then you just have to gamble, like, well, will anyone really read these? I bet I'm fine. I have done that once. Um, so, so this word covenant is, is weird to us. That's why I threw up the descriptions. Um, but, uh, but the biblical authors chose this word on purpose, right? They didn't choose an ordinary word for, for agreements. Um, uh, they, they chose this word because um, if we make an agreement, it implies that both parties are, are equal. And, and clearly that's not the case. When God makes a, a covenant with man, they're not the playing field isn't level, right? God is, is so different. He's so unique, so beyond. Uh, so God, uh, he uses covenants to relate to his people. The people don't get to negotiate. He proposes the covenant, and, and you're either in or, or you're out. Wayne Grudem says that God has made covenants with man throughout the history of Scripture. This essential element, or the essential element at the heart of all of them is the promise, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So Exodus 19 through 24, this is the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and, and when you uh, read later in Scripture about the Old Covenant, it's almost always talking about this very covenant. Like this, this covenant is, is a huge deal in Scripture. So we're going to watch a video um, Bible, by the uh, Bible Project. Um, and this is, uh, this is the same team that uh, does the... Did my voice just get weird? Yeah, okay, good. It's not in my head. Um, so this is the same team that uh, does the Bible read-through that, that I've been talking about, that I want us to do. And part of, part of why I like their read-through is because at the beginning of each book, they have a video that helps explain some of the overarching themes of that book. And they also have what they call theme videos, and we're going to watch one of those right now, that helps explain a theme that goes through Scripture. So this video is, uh, is on the covenant, so let's watch this together. Well, I hope that that video was, was helpful, and obviously it covered more than just the Mosaic Covenant. I, I think it, it helps us understand what God's doing with covenants and how, how beautiful it is. We, we can't fulfill the covenant. Israel couldn't fulfill their promises, their, the conditions that they were to meet, and here is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus does that. So, so if, we, if we weren't able to keep the law, then, then, then why, did, why did God give it? We've been talking a lot about the law well, here's, here's three, uh, three things. Uh, the law revealed to us God's nature and his will, right? The law revealed to us who, who God is. Um, it also exposed our, our sinful nature, our disobedience. And it, and it shows us our need for a Savior 
Galatians 3.24. Actually, I'm going to read 3.23, even though we only have 24 up there. I'm going to read both of them to you. It says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Then verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. I want to read a, a quote from John Stott. It says, After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in, in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. So the law was, was keeping us until Christ came. It showed us, it pointed us to, to our need for Christ. Let's jump into uh, verse 9 of t- chapter 24. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. They ate and they drank. Right, so they, they, they get a glimpse of God's glory here. The leaders go up with Moses after hearing the law and agreeing, and, and they, see, they see God. They catch, they catch his feet. Right? That's, that's all they see is his feet and, and what he's walking on. And that was plenty. That was, that was plenty for them to handle. Uh, earlier, Sherry read from uh, Isaiah 6. Isaiah has a vision of God in the throne room, and he responds by saying, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Right? He knows that he is sinful, and here's a holy God. Revelation 1, uh, John sees resurrected Jesus, and he falls down as though dead. He, he's just paralyzed at the sight of Jesus in his glory. So God is he's nothing like us. And it's easy to get comfortable or complacent in our thinking about God um, that, that we miss how glorious he is, how different he is. Right? Scripture tells us he's, he's surrounded by angels that over and over again, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We sing the words holy to God. And that makes sense. We are sinful, right? We sing to this holy God, but these angels have not sinned. And yet they see how different God is than them. So their, 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 uh, their playlist is on one song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's what they proclaim. So God is absolutely incredible. And, and Moses and these leaders, they, they get to see his feet Right? They're blown away by that. They have a meal. They celebrate. Verse 12, 
It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. And uh, so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and, uh, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and, and 40 nights. So the, the, the mountain's covered by this cloud. And Moses is sitting in the waiting room, so to speak. And, and then God in, in, invites him in to his presence. And, and, and they, um, it, it says that, that his glory was like a devouring fire. Right? And, and this happens in Scripture. When, when, when the author doesn't know how to fully describe something. They get as close as they can with a word. They, they take something that they've seen before, and, and they say, it was kind of like this thing. It, it was like this that I know, but it was different. I don't know how to explain it. This is as close as I can get you. So, so he says it, it's, it's like a devouring fire in the mountain. That's what Moses, that's where Moses is. But this isn't all of God's glory. This must be just a little sample because in, in Exodus 33, um, Moses, he's with God, and he says, show me your glory. I, I want to see your glory. And, and uh, God says to him in verse 19, he, he says, okay, I'm going to pass before you. Verse 20 says, but you, you, you cannot see my face. You, you cannot handle it. Like you, you would die if you saw my face. So I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock. I'm going to put my hand there and, and cover you so you can't even inadvertently try and sneak a peek at me. And then when I pass, I'll remove my hand and, 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 and you'll see my back. Like that's all you can handle is, is my backside. That's all the glory that, that you can take. Moses comes off the mountain in Exodus 34, and it says his face is shining. Right? I don't know what that means. It's like a, a glory sunburn or, or something. Um, but we don't know exactly what it means, but, but it, it freaked the people out. He had to put a veil on. Right? Like, this is what happened when, when, when he saw God's glory. Well, a, a, a glimpse of God's glory. It is so clear that there is none like God, that he is out of our league Jeremiah 10.6 says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. For Samuel 2.2, There is no one holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. David Platt says, The essence of sin is this. He says, Man substitutes himself for God. We say that I am God. I do what I want to do. God doesn't tell me what to do. And back in chapters 8 and 9 of the Exodus story, um, uh, God tells Pharaoh that, that, this, that a certain plague is going to come, right? And, and through that, you, you will know that there's no one like me at all. And as we've gone through this story with, with Israel, with Egypt, my guess is most of the time we connect with Israel, which, which makes sense. I think most of the time that is who we are supposed to relate to, connect with, compare ourselves to with Israel, because there's, there's so much of, of, of Israel in us. Um, but in this story, I think we also 
should think about how we're like Pharaoh, right? how we want to substitute ourselves for God like Pharaoh did. We want to be king. We want to dictate how life will go. We don't want to let God have the power. Over and over, God shows himself to us and gives us opportunity after opportunity to humble ourselves. And yet so often, our heart is hard towards God. One observation is, is um, there's limited access to this, to this glory that they got to see, right? Like Moses and Aaron, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders, they get to see some of it. But Moses is the one that, that went up. He was the only one that was invited. He was the mediator uh, between God and, and Israel. Now, because of Jesus, we have access to God now. Hebrews 4 tells us that, that, that we get to go, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness and, and confidence. Moses was, was Israel's mediator. Jesus is our mediator, and he's constantly interceding for us with God. He's constantly doing that. The staff, we were talking about that at some point this week, just, just marveling that, that all the time, like, God goes on our behalf, right? Like, if I think about who prays for me most in this world, it's probably my mom, right? My mom does not intercede for me like Jesus intercedes for me, right? Jesus is constantly going before God. He doesn't stop, and it's absolutely amazing. All right, let, let, let's get to the, the blood part of the passage. Um, and on, on the screen, I think we're going to have verse 8. I'm actually going to start a couple verses before in verse 5 just to remind us of, of what was going on. So uh, Moses, it says, Moses, uh, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. Here's verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Right? He threw the blood on them. Let that sink in for just a moment. Because we are, we're so disconnected from a scene like this. I do not like blood, right? There's no question that I was not going to be a doctor or, or a nurse. Um, I get squeamish uh, pretty easily. Um, if there's an actual emergency and you're bleeding next to me, most of the time I can be okay. Later, I want to like throw up, but, but in the moment I'll be okay. But uh, last week, there were lots of people here for Thanksgiving, uh, and uh, Caleb uh, Malachewski is here, former student, uh, he's, uh, he's finishing up uh, school to be a physician's assistant. So I'm just catching up with him. He's asking about our family. I'm asking him about school. About uh, He's doing his clinical rotations now. He's telling me stories. Then it gets really exciting. He, he pulls out his phone, and, and he, he, he points it towards me and, 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 uh, and says, Oh, you got to see this. And I, I didn't... I was trying to figure out what the picture was because it was extremely close up, right? So I'm, I'm trying to understand this image in front of me, and he's talking. I'm like sort of listening, but I'm not really taking it in. And then the two just come together, and I realize that he's saying, you got to see the first guy that I stitched up. And, and I realize it, and I shove the phone <laughs> away from me, and my stomach's in my throat, I, I, don't, I know I'm not going to pass out, but I'm not feeling good. Like, I do not do well with blood at all. 
So here's Moses, and it, it says he doesn't just have a basin of blood, he's got basins, multiple basins of blood. And he, and he throws it on the altar, um, and like I said, the, the, altar, the blood on the altar, it, it's necessary, right? The blood is necessary to appease God's wrath against sinners. God's a holy God, right? Sin deserves judgment, so a sacrifice has to be made. So he, he throws it against the altar, and then he throws it on the people. And I wonder, and this is going to sound so strange to you, but stick with me. I wonder if there's any chance that some of them felt comfort by that. And I don't mean because they're like some psychopath. But, but because of their history with the blood, right, back in Exodus 12, like, is there any chance that they felt comfort as they remembered how God had saved them? So let, let's remember their relationship with blood not that long ago. Okay, Moses and Aaron, they come to Pharaoh. They say, let the people go so, so we can go worship our God. He says, no. So God's going to, he sends a plague, right? Moses, uh, or sorry, Pharaoh begs them to stop, says he'll let them go. Uh, they stop it. He doesn't let them go. He changes his mind, send another plague. And this just happens over and over and over again. Nine plagues, this happens, right? And then the 10th plague comes, the, the Passover, where God says he's, he, he's going to send the destroyer and the, and the destroyer is, is going to bring judgment, right? He's going, to, he's going to kill the firstborn, right? So David Platt says that there are, there are two portraits of God that we see. We, we see one, the, the just, holy judge. He's totally unique. He's completely holy, and, he, and he's just in everything that he does. He absolutely hates sin. And his very character mandates that he, he pours out judgment on sin. And sin... Sin deserves destruction. The, the destroyer is going to come over every house, right? N- not just the Egyptians, not just Israel, but every house will come over. And all the people, because of sin, deserve destruction. So this portrait is, is a picture of, of, God, of God's judgment that, that will come. And, and we don't like this. This makes us uneasy. But it reminds us that, that sin is, is a real problem. And God is just in his judgment for sin. So the second picture is the loving Savior because we know, if you know the story, God gives his grace in the Passover. He makes a way to save his people. So how does God make a way for the people to escape his wrath? He provides the blood of a spotless lamb. Right? This is God's love and, and, and God's grace. He enables his people to escape destru- destruction and wrath by providing a substitute, the blood of this lamb. So in the houses uh, of, of Egypt, there's, there's weeping, right? There's, there, there's, there's weeping over the death brought by the destroyer. And then the houses of Israel, there's joy because they've been spared. If there are any tears at all in the Israelite houses, it's, it's, it's tears of joy because they know they've, exchanged, they've escaped judgment. So what's, what's the difference? The only difference is the blood. The only difference is, is the blood. Israel wasn't better, right? Egypt, Egypt wasn't worse. It was only that God told them what to do, to take this lamb, to put the blood on the doorposts, to stay inside and trust that that blood was going to save them. Right? That, that's, that's the difference. Egypt and Israel alike both deserve death. But the people, the Israelites, believed that the blood of the Lamb would save them. And it did. It wasn't because of who they were. 
It wasn't because they prayed a lot. This is how God chose to save them. So he saved them through, uh, from the destroyer that night by trusting in the blood. The blood's what got them out of Egypt. The parents, the parents knew their firstborn was alive because of the blood of the lamb. The blood was, was everything to them. The blood is what helped them escape slavery. And now here they are making a covenant with the God who saved them that's confirmed by blood. Blood had covered their doorposts and saved them, and now blood covered them. They needed the blood to cover them, and they knew it. So notice what, what happens after this. We, we already talked about this section, but, but in verse 9, that's when they see God, right? That, that's when they get to catch a glimpse of his glory. After the blood, that's when they see who God is and, and, and celebrate the meal, and Moses goes up. All of this happens because of the blood. So the blood isn't optional. It's absolutely necessary for sinful man to be under the blood. The lamb had to take the place of the people in order to atone for sin. So the blood of the Passover and the covenant being confirmed by blood both point to Jesus. Both point to when Jesus would shed his blood. The perfect, spotless lamb substituted himself for us. He shed his blood. He takes our place. His blood covers anyone that would have faith. Anyone that would trust that the blood from this lamb would be sufficient to save them completely from the just judgment they deserve for sin. We often ask, how can, how can a loving God condemn people, right? How can a loving God judge people? And, and that question from a human point of view makes sense. Unfortunately, Scripture, though, is written from God's perspective. So, so the question's flipped as we see how, how just God is, right? And, and, and we, can all, we can all think of times when we've heard a verdict, um, right, from a jury, like, man, that was not right that that person got off, right? Like, we can all re- relate to that, okay? So, so Scripture flips the question and says, how, how can, a, how can a, a just, holy God satisfy his character as the judge and save our souls at the same time? How is that possible that we can be forgiven when we do not deserve it? We have to understand that God is satisfied by Jesus, our substitute, who brings salvation. So on the cross, God fully judges sin. Holy and just wrath is poured out on our sin. and His love and grace for sinners is clearly seen as he steps in and takes our place. So earlier I quoted David Platt when he says that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Well, God saves us by substituting himself for man. And it's absolutely incredible. It's the blood that makes all of the difference. Um, Exodus 24, 8, I think it's still up there. So Moses says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus says this. As, as he's, as he's taking, um, as he's taking uh, the, the Lord's Supper, as he's presenting them with that, he says, um, instead of saying, Behold the blood of the covenant, he says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God is so gracious that not only does he make a covenant with his people, but he provides the substitute to make the covenant work. In order for him to be our God and for us to be his people, he had to fulfill both sides of the agreement. So we're we're going to proclaim that. The band will come up here in a minute. We're going to take communion together. um, And there will be... uh, people at each station, um, and they're going to hand you the, the bread and the cup, 
And, and they're going to say, um, body of Christ broken for you and, and blood of Christ shed for you. And this is, uh, this is a meal that, that Christ gave us to remember what he's done for us, to acknowledge what he's done, to proclaim what he's done. If you know Jesus, this meal is for you. If you haven't trusted Jesus yet, this isn't for you yet. But I would hope that, that you would consider trusting Jesus, that, that you would consider the message of the gospel, that you are in need of a Savior because of sin. And there's a God that, that is, he's already done what is necessary to save you, if you will accept that. Um, as you come up, uh, I've noticed that when we do it this way, because you're going to hear, if you haven't been with us, you're going to hear body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you like a hundred times throughout the room here. Um, and, and, and sometimes people, when they come up, they don't know what to do in response to that. You don't have to do anything besides take it. Like, you could say amen. You could say thank you. You could say praise the Lord. If you feel awkward, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, it's not about that. Um, but let, let's come up uh, during these next songs and, and, and take this together. So I'm going to pray. Jesus, God, we thank you that you made a way. Lord, that you are a substitute. God, thank you that by your blood we can be forgiven. That like Israel, trusting in the blood over their doorposts, recognizing that that's what they needed to cover them. That's the way you provided. Lord, that we too can put our faith in the blood of Jesus. Father, would we be a people that know how awesome you are, Lord, that you truly are magnificent, that you are worthy of our devotion, that nothing else compares to you. There's no one like you, God. Jesus, it's in in your name that we pray. Amen.